This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. I'm Alex Schwartz, and this is Critics at Large, a new podcast from The New Yorker where we make sense of what's going on right now in the culture and how we got here. We are all critics at The New Yorker, and each week on the show, the three of us are going to talk about one big idea that's showing up across our culture right now. You know, I think so often it can feel like big moments in the culture just come out of nowhere, like they appear all of a sudden, we're left wondering how we got to where we are. Um, So the point of this show, our idea is to make sense of that, to connect the dots, to try to look across mediums, across genres, to figure out how these ideas have gotten to us and, and why they're here. And then to ask how our culture looks different on the other side. So hello. Hi, guys. Hi, Alex. Hey. Let's get to it. Let's do this. So today I want to talk about a trend that I've started to notice on TV, and perhaps I'm not alone here, which is this, this strain of TV that blends comedy and reality television in ways that seem formulated to make us, the viewers, just deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) It's like, you know, I'll turn on the TV and there will be this new show that everybody is loving, and I start to watch it, and the feeling in me is – That feeling of terrified revulsion. Oh, God, here we are again. And I'm just (laughs) feeling that more and more often. Um, You know, cringe comedy is nothing new. It's been around for a very long time. But what does seem new to me is right now is this particular unstable blend of uh, scripted and reality television that is just bringing us to a fever pitch (laughs) of cringiness. Um, And as a shorthand, I've just simply started calling it cringe core. So I wanted to dig into this cringe core phenomenon. What is it? What's driving it? Um, You know, and mainly, what does it say about us as viewers that we want to watch this stuff, that we're so fascinated by looking at people navigate these excruciatingly uncomfortable situations? Like, is it schadenfreude? Um, (laughs) Certainly, that must have something to do with it. Um, Mm -hmm. But we keep coming back for more. I mean, I'm having this – I'm I'm getting the remote. I'm turning on the TV, and I'm feeling the cringe. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? Let's begin there. Yes, definitely. Do you know the cringe to which I refer? Definitely. It's a cringe. It's sometimes almost a scream erupts <laughs> from my lips. I personally love it because I love feeling ashamed. <gasps> uh, but I also hate it, you know, which is, I think, part of the whole deal, right? Well, it's, tell me tell me a little bit about like, OK, so when you think about the cringe, what are some titles that that you guys think of? I think definitely there is the sort of um, we're in the middle of the sort of big vogue of Nathan Fielder, right? So his shows, Nathan for You, and especially his his masterwork, the rehearsal. Um, in that same universe, I think Fielder is a producer of uh, How to with John Wilson, which has got a very um, different vibe, more of a sort of verite vibe, but similar. Mm-hmm. Um, these shows with that a sort of on some level sweet, on some level sympathetic, but also deeply maybe like a social presence at the in, at the middle that's trying to organize reality in a way that uh, makes sense to them and mm-hmm. along the way sort of mortify or 
make sort of an object of various real people along the way. Yes, that's exactly it. And, you know, the feeling comes first. You're watching something and you just feel that prickle of revulsion, that sense of horror. (laughs) I can't believe this is happening. And when I ask what makes me feel that way, usually the answer is a show in which a strange host figure um, (laughs) takes on a version of reality television in which he, and it almost always is he, Mm -hmm. in in which he is put into society and immediately begins disrespecting its norms. Um, He is talking to, quote-unquote, normal people, and the conversations don't go as expected, and you feel basically humiliated on behalf of the other person. Humiliation comes into it. Um, But often these people go along. They go along with the, the strange premise. Um, So what is this? Like, can you guys come up with a better definition than what I just came up with? (laughs) I mean, I I think you know this feeling. Yeah, I think this was great. I mean, I I think the point you made about um, a strange host figure who approaches society and social situations and simply does not respect the contract that most of us act according to, you know, in civilized society is, uh, I think, key to this. And uh, one thing, though, however, that I I do want to say in defense, in defense of the cringe, of the cringe host, the cringe meister, who is, uh, (laughs) who is edging social convention. Yes, Uh defend away. Um, Edging social convention. Edging social convention. uh, (laughs) Is to say that... uh, he never ceases to present himself as an absolute freak. Yes. Uh, so because, for instance, he's... for instance, Nomi, like, what shows are you thinking of? You know, I'm, well, I'm thinking of you know Nathan Fielder, for instance. Of course, I think Nathan we probably Fielder, are. the the He's Godfather, yeah. the Godfather of cringe, <laughs> uh, the savant of cringe. This a makes man, him sound like a cringy rapper. I love the Godfather a man, of cringe. The Godfather of cringe, cringe, a man who allows himself uh, to do whatever he wants. We love you, Nathan. Or I love you, Nathan. Do we? <laughs> <laughs> or do we? Or do we, right? That's part of the question. Um, so tell us, yeah, just give us a little bit about his shows, you know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, uh, the four-season run on Comedy Central of his show, Nathan For You, in mm-hmm. which he played um, a half-hapless, half, hapless, half uh, <laughs> you know, cruel and sociopathic uh, business <laughs> consultant who approaches small businesses who are looking for help maximizing their profits. They're often failing. I run a yogurt shop. I own the pizza place. Help me, Nathan. Nathan. My name is Nathan Fielder, and I graduated from one of Canada's top business schools with really good grades. Now, I'm using my knowledge to help struggling small business owners make it in this competitive world. And he helps them come up with schemes to make their business more robust. And these schemes are always harebrained. And the business people think that he, he's sincerely trying to help them, that this is yeah. sincerely I mean, I the think point of the show is to help them. Definitely. Definitely. Do you have an example? Like, what comes to mind for you? Okay, so... As a classic, a as classic a, Nathan A moment. classic Nathan Gambit is... Um, uh, okay, let's see. There are so many to, cho- <laughs> there are so many to <laughs> choose from. But, for instance, um, 
there is a guy. He is his own business. He is a mall Santa Claus. Underneath this man's clothes is a huge gift from God. Can you guess what it is? That's right, his Santa Claus body. James Bailey has been a professional Santa for over... And uh, uh, his problem, you know, because there's always a problem, how to make more profits for my business, is that his only business is during the Christmas season. And so Nathan comes up with the idea of, let's bring you to the mall uh, way before Christmas. Every Christmas, people line up in malls to get their pictures taken with Santa. But what if you could do it when it's less crowded and at half the cost? The plan? Discount photos with Santa in the summer. Yeah, that's a great idea. I can see the dollar yeah. signs in your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Right. For this to work, and to of course, he doesn't ask the mall for permission. And so he smuggles in the Santa <laughs> and dressed himself as an elf. So he himself also <laughs> looks ridiculous and brings in like an enormous candy cane and tries to break into the mall. My hope was that if we got in there early, we could do about a half hour's worth of photos with James before anyone realized we weren't supposed to be there. The mall. The security guard kicks them out, and he comes back in again. We're going. I'll make nine bucks an hour. Let's go. We are leaving. Nathan, you want me to stop him? Excuse me? I said, do you want me to stop you? Meanwhile, the Santa Claus is completely, um, you know, confused and befuddled by the whole thing. Uh, Another example is uh, a woman who has a travel agency. Because everyone's using the Internet now, her business is, you know, has been doing badly. Uh, Her only clients are elderly, because those are still the people who use a travel agent rather than just book tickets online. And so he says to her, how about in order to maximize your profits, you don't just offer travel packages to these clients, you also offer them funeral services, because they're elderly. (laughs) So you try to sell them packages for the dying. What are you talking? I mean, even you acknowledge the business is going to die. Yes. Travel agents aren't going to be around much longer. My opinion. Your yes. opinion. Yes. So this is a last-ditch effort to squeeze out as much as you can from your customers before they're gone for good. Hmm. Rose seemed interested in the prospect of making money from her dying customers. But it's it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And uh, there's an element... Uh, of cringe to every single thing he touches. Yeah, what's interesting about those examples um, is that, you know, we're talking about how some of this violates the social contract, and so we feel so uncomfortable seeing the contract violated. But what's interesting, it occurs to me, is that the people who Nathan Fielder is approaching in both of those examples, and indeed likely throughout the whole show, and I say likely because, guys, I could not watch all of Nathan <laughs> for you. Oh. I, I, I may yeah. have to now. Yeah. You know, I've become... Thicker in the skin in some ways since it was originally on. Um, I'm going to come to your house and and just at like around 10 p.m. and stand by yourself and offer to help to teach you how to watch it, and then hijinks will ensue and that interaction. Exactly. Well, Well, okay, right. Mm -hmm. But so so exactly, and you'll watch Vincent. I'll watch that show. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. this is okay. I real I actually think this is where the entire cringe movement is going, um, and I want to get there, but. I want to just say that I think one of the things going on here, from the way you describe it, Nomi, is even as the social contract is being broken, the people on the other end are desperately trying to keep it alive. Because if they say to this guy, get out of here, this idea (laughs) is ridiculous, this is absurd, you know, you're full of it, then 
they've done something rude and not polite, and they've broken the contract. And so he's stretching it like taffy. It's not even right. so much breaking it, yeah. but seeing how far it will extend and how far people will go. Yeah. I mean, like, Vincent, yeah. is that, like, where are you with the cringe? Is it something that appeals to you? What, is, does it repel you? It, it off, the, the TV of it, the product, often makes me want to watch. But um, the, these figures in the middle especially as they are presented now, the sort of newest evolution of this trend, especially Nathan, um, definitely repel me. Like I... Um, the host figure. The host figure. Mm-hmm. If Nathan walked into this room, I would tell him to turn around and walk out. The contract I just tell, breaker. I just don't want anything to do with it. But part of the, part of the thing here, you know, um, and what is, what is potentially new about our new moment is that, like, they have the convention of TV, reality, mm-hmm. Um, a certain kind of self-help reality. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. have that on their side, right? Yeah. So um, people watch so much television uh, and know that there are like weird things that happen or things they might not understand and try to stay game because they've watched so much Property Brothers or whatever. Sure. That like they have in their mind this idea of like, okay, here's this weird TV guy and <laughs> I'm going to play along because there's cameras and, and because I've seen this genre, right? So he sort of has like... You know, the whole thing is a, is about a certain kind of self-awareness, right? And he has the self-awareness, not only not only his own sort of knowing, fucking with you thing, mm-hmm. but he can play against the, you know, what what the people, the subjects of this thing, they think that they're playing some sort of self-aware game too, it seems to me. Right. right so right. they're like, let me stay with it. This is weird, but maybe it's a funny show, but I don't know that I'm being made and a fool of And maybe it's to their benefit, you right. know, because it's an exchange, right? right. I mean, the exchange in, in reality television— is that you're going to film me and you're probably going to catch me saying something embarrassing or revealing something about myself that I don't necessarily want to reveal. But I will gain fame. I will maybe earn money. Right. Um, you know, I will somehow benefit. Yeah, I think that is a huge part of the text of the rehearsal. This is yeah. Nathan Fielder's most recent show that aired last summer on HBO. So, like, rehearsals yeah. like Nathan for you on a million, right? But steroids, on steroids yeah. because it is like still self-help. It is like let mm-hmm. me help you with something, but it's all about let me help you be a human being. Mm-hmm. Right? There are situations in life that are insufficiently under our control and therefore let me help you um rehearse. This is why it's called the rehearsal mm-hmm. for these um for these moments. And so he builds these elaborate sets. The first episode is about this poor guy named Cor Skeet. A few months ago, Cor responded to a vague Craigslist post I put on the internet, sharing a story about a lie he told his bar trivia team over 12 years ago. I um, told my friends that I had an advanced degree and I didn't. Um, I play trivia with them often, and the problem was that I um, wanted to seem like I was smarter than I was. My teammates all had advanced degrees. He's he's put forward this lie that he has a master's degree. He needs to make this sincere confession and hope that it doesn't cost him this friendship. And so Nathan builds a version of the bar. Many of my friends I've learned have been to this bar. It's a bar. The Alligator Lounge. The the Alligator Lounge. Yeah. He he builds an entire, truly objectively, insanely detailed version of this bar. The the sort of traffic flow, a bunch of paid actors that would go in and and be the person that runs trivia or be the person behind the bar or whatever. Um, All so that Cora can... Uh, rehearse this interaction. Every detail was meticulously replicated this time. Oh my gosh. 
Oh my gosh. This spice rack, it's the exact spices they have, the garlic, yeah. the basil. This chair is an exact, this, these wow. ribs. Wow. Yeah, and that, even, even that's um, well, exactly the way it is. The, the portrait kind of tilts. You see that balloon there? That's in the real bar. Wow. It'll be like walking in in a normal level and then being able to know my bearings. When you show up on the actual night, it'll feel just like this. Yes. No surprises. No. You know everything that's going to happen. And as we see, there's like a, a, a another level of um, fiction around it, right? There are actors that are playing the the bar patrons, the bartender. So already, Cora is being tricked, even though he thinks he's sort of on the production side of this operation of like, it's all about me talking to my friend. So yeah. it is like a, you know, it, I think the rehearsal is useful because it is, it presents the theme of all these shows as, mm-hmm. it's, as it's true text, which is like manipulation of reality. It is, it's about control. Which leads me to the question I want to ask when we're back from the break, which is, what does this mean for us? What do we like about it? What do we feel about it? What do we think about it? Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be right back. So this is a trend. Uh, this is a thing, cringe core. We've been talking a lot about Nathan Fielder. There are certainly other people we can talk about um, and, and who have different flavors. It's not always the same kind of sense of being pushed to your limit. Um, you know, John Wilson, who just had the show How To with John Wilson, which ran for three seasons on HBO, there were frequent moments of charm in this show. It's a documentary right. show. And for there, there is a positive sense that humanity and all its horrifying grossness is actually a beautiful thing. There are countless opportunities to make small talk in a big city, even though some people seem to avoid it at all costs. Small talk is the glue that binds us all together and the armor that shields us from each other's darkest thoughts. You know, the script, John John Wilson, the host and the director, speaks in a very halting, consciously awkward mm-hmm. way, pauses at strange points in the sentence <laughs> as if he's having trouble even getting the words out, which itself may be a kind of cringe aesthetic. And even though it can be risky to open up, it's worth it when you find the right person. Otherwise, stuff will just keep uh, building up. And you need to sift out all that bad stuff uh, once in a while. And uh, then you'll you'll be in a better place. I think a big part of it is the demeanor of the host, right? Like either it's it's Nathan with his like sort of flat affect mm-hmm. or it's John Wilson who sounds very sincere but also very halting. I think one of the things that I've been like, trying to formulate this, I think that now as opposed to the old way, which I think was all about hostility, mm-hmm. right? Like Andy Kaufman hated the audience. Larry David, before he started doing before, – before Seinfeld when he was a stand-up, would get up do one joke or two jokes and be like, look out at the audience and be like, oh, a lot of the cringe was about like open hostility. I mean, even Letterman, you know, yeah, the like, sort I of cynical, you. like, right. I hate you. Whereas I do think that one of the deep themes of the new people is neurodivergence. Definitely. You don't really talk about it as much with these people, right. but like there are Reddit threads of people with autism or various spectrum disorders mm. who talk about how Nathan makes them feel seen, right? Because he doesn't mm. know how to navigate the world. I think you could say something similar about how John John Wilson talks and is like using this format 
on a certain level to immerse himself, right? Like the the format is a way of en- enabling himself to like be. I don't think it's a, a even a mistake that these things have gotten more um, popular mid and sort of whatever we call post pandemic, where we're like, how do I be with people? Yes, I need this thing as a vehicle really to, to bring me into closeness with other people. Yeah. So it's like what on a, on a certain level that's very moving, right? Like. Anybody, whether you uh, identify with neurodivergence or not, all of us have ways that we make ourselves Mm -hmm. be in community with other people. You've just said so many interesting things. Basically what you're saying, if if I'm catching your drift, is, you know, we're sitting here talking about how um, the social contract is being broken by these shows. And maybe these shows are saying, well, your social contract makes no sense. The way that the world is that everyone assumes is normal and natural and we all know how to interact with each other. You say please. I say thank you. Whatever. Maybe those are things that that don't make much sense to begin with. Right. And breaking them down to their their basic building blocks, trying to relearn them and represent them again is part of the goal of the show, to violate them in some ways in order to understand them differently. Yeah. Right. But so, like, when you talk about contempt for the audience or hate, like, what are you thinking of? So one of my favorite, sometimes I just watch this thing, um, is uh, this video is Andy Kaufman, who I think really importantly, you know, he never wanted to be called a comedian. Sometimes he wanted to be called a song and dance man. Sometimes he wanted to be called a performance artist, right? It's like mm-hmm. a different thing. There's a, a video of him <laughs> up uh, on a stage speaking in this like affected British accent, <coughs> reading from the beginning, Great Gatsby. Anyway, it's called, it's called The uh, Great Gatsby. It's by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And uh, here it is. Chapter one. <clears throat> in my younger and more vulnerable years... My father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Um, a very interesting book to read in a British accent. It's ve- exactly. Like, why would you even do it? But it's just like about like some hoity-toity thing. And as it goes on, you hear two things. People, and it's weirdly gendered, I think, because you hear like these very male-sounding boos hmm. and these very like the laughs of women. Or at least the terms in which they express them are usually plagiaristic and more Reserving judgment is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that. I think the initial subject of cringe comedy is the stand-up audience. I do think that, like, stand-up comedy is, like, the basis for all this. Because it's like, I'm in control. I have this microphone. And I can do whatever, like, you know, crowd heckling or, like, the thing where you go to a comedy club and somebody, like, starts to make fun of your outfit, right? Mm. The fundamental imbalance, right? Person on stage. You out there. But then there's another imbalance because, you know, stand-up comedy starts with usually people that are societally on the bottom, right? So and now, it's also right. when, when you're putting – sorry, when you're, when you're putting yourself on stage, you're putting yourself up there to be heckled potentially. Right. And Andy Kaufman is, you know, he wanted to be beat up. I mean, right. it's a sort of like <laughs> – the sort of like sanctity of being a victim, you know, of being – kind of knowingly being a, a victim and putting himself up to literally be beat up, you know, in yeah. like a wrestling match. So I, I think it's – I think you're absolutely right in saying that there's different levels of kind of imbalance. And I think too in, in the cringe – you know, in the cringe matrix, the cringe core <laughs> matrix, um, by both revealing your subjects as potentially idiots or potentially, you know, not in on the joke, but also revealing yourself and also revealing the mechanisms, you know, that we've become so inured to watching reality television defamiliarizing them. Totally. I mean, we're we're getting to we're getting to where 
we need to go, which is which is to us. You know, so there are three people in this equation or three groups in this equation. There is the performer, you know, who may be a Nathan Fielder, it may be a John Wilson, it may be someone else, it may be um, Bora. <laughs> and then there's the person who is being interacted with in, you know, on the on the show. And then there's us watching what's happening. And one thing that strikes me is that our role has become more unstable than it ever was. Um, you know, I think the reason why cringe just struck me as such a persistent thing is because my first emotional reaction when I see stuff like this is to feel for the person who's on the other end, to think, oh, God, they're in a horrible situation and they're going to be made a fool of and they're kind of a quirky person Mm. or a preposterous person or a silly person. And we're here to watch them be exposed. It's dramatic irony, right? The most uncomfortable feeling in all in in literature. All literature, yeah. Yeah, in all literature where something is going on with a character that they don't know about. But, you know, we see that the anvil is about to fall on their head and we can't run in and tell them that. And I think these shows at their best – turn, some of them exploit it to its fullest. I think, Nathan, Mm -hmm. for you, maybe exploits that feeling to its absolute fullest. It makes you as uncomfortable as possible. But I think the ones I like turn that experience around and say, who are you to pity me? Like, why are you patronizing these people? Why are you... Maybe maybe I have a little more control than you think, and you're on my... It's my world, and you're living in it. Right. Yeah, there's there's a, a quote that I love from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation where there's uh, Nicolas Cage plays identical twins and uh, the the main twin says to the other twin, recounts how when um, they were in high school, uh, he watched his brother have an interaction with this girl he had a crush on and then his brother walked away and he saw the girl making fun of him and he felt extreme pity and, uh, you know, shame, embarrassment. And then the brother says to him, I knew she was making fun of me, but I loved her and nobody could take that love away from me. You know, that it was about me. It wasn't about her. Oof. I know. And and mm. it's it's the same feeling I get when I watch these shows and I feel so, you know, I catch myself, as you say, feeling kind of like, oh, this poor person, you know. But these people are separate from us and they're different mm. from us and have different reasonings and, and are their own individuals. And they're, they're not necessarily actors in our kind of like the pity drama that's going on in our heads. After the break, do these shows get us farther away from reality or closer to it? That's in a minute on Critics at Large. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. 
I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I want to ask you guys why we are drawn to this stuff. You know, I do think there's something here about an unstable mix of power between viewer, performer, and inadvertent performer. Um, What's going on? You know, like, Vincent, you were talking about the pandemic um, and the need for forging social bonds between people and how the whole world became estranged. Are we still in that moment? Um, Especially since, like, media, like, happens at a necessary lag, I think, like, we even if we aren't in that moment— well, first of all, let me be responsible in saying we're like right now there's COVID all over New York. So who knows whether we'll be in that moment again yes, very indeed. soon. But I think we definitely are in that moment in media. I think media is still trying to deal with that, um, this sort of issue of closeness and reality. And I think a, re- a related phenomenon is um, we have reality TV, which has all of its promises of reality, but is like, as we all know now, totally fake. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? It is. Um, How dare you? <laughs> and we, we have like what used to be called prestige TV, highly choreographed, perfect shot, um, you know. Um, Scripted to the nines and, and beautifully so. Don Draper looking longingly, longingly out of a window, you know, totally um, just so. And um, – I think there's a a middle thing that asks us how much control we have over kind of knowing what's real in our lives. I mean, I think we always have this question. Now we have it with TV. We have it with music. It's like, what do I like and what did Spotify give me? We certainly have it with social media. Social media. What? Who's? Who did I follow and who is this obvious race scientist that all of a sudden Elon Musk wants me to see? Um and how in that environment can anybody get their, like, just desserts or whatever, right? So um, I Do think— Do you mean a kind yeah. of environment where things are being—like, um, uh, like our reality is being catered to us basically against our will? Is or, that what you're talking about? Like, served to up us to us? And, and mediated. And mediated. Like, there's, a, there's an ambiguity as to, like, how much of, like, how much of anything— is real. I see. So, like, right. So, like, the person who's popping up on my Twitter, I'm sorry, X feed, um, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> right. That's someone's behind that saying, no, 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 I want you to see this. I'm pushing it. You yeah. should see this. Got it. Right? Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I really, I agree with that, Vincent. And I think um, the situation we f- often found, find ourselves in is f- feeling as if power is working upon us <laughs> in right. a variety of ways. And we are pinned like mere butterflies on a collector's mat. And we don't have necessarily agency over our lives. And who knows what's going to happen and everything is collapsing. And can we just, you know, shore up our closest reality as as close to us as as possible? Um, 
And I think watching these spectacles of lack of control and confusion is, I think, possibly that's part of the attraction of of watching these things play out and these subjects kind of being worked upon. It's funny because we're talking about how they're all being worked upon, but it does occur to me that in a show like The Rehearsal, the people who go on the rehearsal have all agreed to participate to rehearse. They've, they are trying to get more control in their lives. <laughs> right, yeah. right, They're right. trying to get the ultimate control. You know, there's, there's, um, the, the, there's a woman who wants to know what it's like to have a child. This is the most far-fetched. I actually – so I've avoided watching the rehearsal. I, I watched the first episode with Core. Yeah. Um, cringed to the top of my ears. <laughs> Cora and put was it like away. a bridge too far. For it was a bridge like, too far. <laughs> the, what allowed me to continue watching the show, which I did last night in a <laughs> glorious binge, and I thought, wow, you watched hardened? the whole rehearsal last night. Yeah. Oh my god, that's crazy. Well, my child slept. That beatific. I knew I that wow. the glow that I saw I was know. not just. But you know, I thought like these people are in some weird kind of control of their experience, and I think it's possible that the joke is on me. And does that make me feel? better? Maybe, perhaps it does. And is that, what I'm trying to ask is, is that the feeling that they're after? The joke is on me, so I feel better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is there a power in being powerless before these master manipulators? Um, is the cringe, do I need to go th- so far through the cringe that I come out on the other side, you know, like Winston at the end of 1984, and I'm in love with the cringe? <laughs> I think I may be there. Here's the weird thing. This is what I want to ask you guys about. It stopped feeling shameful to watch a woman um, play act her entire fake life as a mother with these child actors, which she does. Um, It was so preposterous and so totally nonsense, so the wrong way to go about arriving at something that can never be previewed, the experience of being a parent. To raise a child from 0 to 18 over the course of two months before deciding if you want to have one yourself. That's the rehearsal I'm giving Angela a 44-year-old woman who has chronically put off having children because the circumstances have never been quite right. I'd like it to happen in, within the right context. Which is what? In a marriage with, with a man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. With the love of my life. And is it, do you have that person in your life right now? or? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel that she was ridiculous in some way um, because we all try to plan in various ways for what our future will be. Mm-hmm. And That woman, I forgot her name. She Angela. 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 Oh my gosh. Well, she's very cringy and yet she kind of feels that she knows exactly who she is and so who am I to tell her she doesn't? I think I'll bring this air purifier too. So we had to relocate her from her studio apartment to a rented house in rural Oregon because she didn't want to raise a kid in the city. We probably have a house with a couple of acres with food and animals. We'd probably be online, but we'd also have access to go off the grid because infant skulls have not fully formed. So they absorb wireless radiation um, a lot more than we do into their into their brains. Oh, okay. You know, I feel that reality in our culture, um, and you guys were just talking about this with reality TV, it's like the last undiscovered tribe of the Amazon. Like, we'll never make contact with it again. It's all reality has been explored and exploited, and it's hard to get the pure thing. Yeah. It's like, can we ever touch reality 
again? Yeah. Do these shows help us or push us farther <laughs> away? Well, I mean, it, we were talking about the differences in the sort of what old cringe comedy was and what new cringe comedy is. And maybe that's the difference, right? Like old cringe comedy was like the way to get to the real is to fuck shit up. Like it's to, violent. To get in trouble, to be – and like yeah. – and to mm. – there is a veneer in society and I want to break it down and I get down to the real. Whereas someone like Nathan Fielder says, no, artifice helps you get closer to reality. And so this is why I think Angela is like a hero because, yes, she does like it mm. until she says, actually, I'm done. You know, yeah, she, like, she like breaks up with Nathan. And we don't know, and she, the, we don't know what reality she, she goes wa- off to. She logs off. She's like, she no logs off. She logs off. And this is why she she's logs off. She logs off cringe. I think that's exactly right. Whereas for uh, Nathan, cringe is a lifestyle. He'll never be free. He stays in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, maybe is it that way because it's like I want to feel something. And even if what I feel (laughs) is cringe, like I've got to experience the emotion. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. It's like drugs or something. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to get – it's trying to break on through to the other side, as Jim Morrison (laughs) said. <laughs> you know, I had to get Jim Morrison in <laughs> once an episode, one a week, once, as, at as least. You're, you're, as, as we know, you're contractually obliged. Let's yeah, yeah, it's in my contract. So, what's next for? Do you guys want to keep on cringing, or are you looking for like, are we flipping to comfort now? Do you want comfort? Do you want more cringe? You know, um, you're making me think with this uh, of a show like Jury Duty, um, which aired earlier this year on the Amazon service Freebie. <laughs> Uh, Freebie. Uh, Yeah. And in a way, I think it's kind of like comfort cringe. Um, And basically, it centers on an elaborate fake recreation of jury duty. My name is Ronald. I'm 29 years old. So everyone in the show is an actor, except for one individual who's not in on the joke and thinks he's actually serving on a real jury. Uh, learn about jury duty, see what this whole thing's about, the process, everything in general. You know, wh- one thing that I liked about the show is that it presented jury duty, you know, kind of a civic activity as a kind of community. There was something heartwarming about it. They all managed to come together and connect, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. even under the the pretext of of this cringe making show with all of these like weird funny things happening and and how is this possible that this Bonds is happening? Were formed. Bonds were formed. Laughs were had. That Lots is, that of is, laughs. That is very heartwarming. It's comfort cringe. We've come to comfort cringe. I like I like the the, the sort of the the, <laughs> the subcategory, the, the chicken pot pie cringe for the soul or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, it's my new. That's also in my contract. A series of books <laughs> are coming out. Yeah. Thank you guys for 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 going down the rabbit hole with me. Thank you, Alex. Thank, Thank you, you, Vincent. So good. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Critics at Large is a co-production of The New Yorker and Condé Nast Entertainment. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. We had engineering help today from Jake Loomis, and this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider following Critics at Large wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. I'm
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.